The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. I'd like to ask you to take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be finishing Matthew chapter 14 this week. If you do not have a Bible, we have black pew Bibles all around the pews. But also, if you do not have a Bible, we have white Bibles on the back table that we would like to give you as a just our gift to you. And so you can follow along with us this morning. We will be in Matthew chapter 14. All growing up, one of the things that I really enjoyed was magic. I remember one time, I think it was Christmas or birthday, my mom and dad bought me a magic set, which was basically this plastic little briefcase that had all of these tricks in it that were quite honestly, too difficult. They, you know, you have YouTube back in those days, so you're going to just hop on YouTube and find the video of how to do certain things. So you had to follow instructions. And it was just really difficult. You couldn't really get the sleight of hand about it. But I really enjoyed uh, magic all growing up. And even now, when I come across it on TV or whatever, I really enjoy watching a, a magician, especially those guys that are on the street, right? Those street performers that they're right in your face and they're doing all of these crazy sleight of hand tricks and whatnot. And it's just a lot of fun. But when you think about it, magic tricks, they're really meant to, to take us out of reality for a second, aren't they? To, to see the world or to see things in a, a, a way that we usually don't look at them. But with that, I think that's the disappointing thing about magic. That in the back of your mind, while you're watching this guy, whatever he's doing with his magic, you know in the back of your mind that it really isn't magic. So when a magician does a trick... We know, right, when we're watching him on stage, that he didn't really cut that woman in half, right? He didn't really take a saw and cut her in half and split her. We we know that there's a trick. We know that there's something behind it. We know that that it's really not true. And so we're left wondering, how did he do that, right? Because we know it's not true. So the first thing we ask is, how did he do that? And this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus walking on the water. And so I looked on Google, and I was like, I wonder if anybody has ever tried to walk on the water. I wonder if any magician has tried to walk on the water. And sure enough, there was a magician out there who has walked on the water. Okay, so this video comes up, and this magician with a mask on, he's, he's at this pool, calm pool. It's a beautiful day, right? And he's standing on the edge of the pool, and he steps into the pool, and all of a sudden he's, he's standing on water, right? And then he begins walking, and he's walking across water. And so it was really interesting to watch because there were these people that were all playing and having a good time in the pool. It looked like a beautiful day. And this magician walks in between all of them on this day. But what made it kind of convincing while he was walking across the water is that there were these, this person who actually swam right underneath him. So it's like, well, if he's being suspended somehow, how is he being suspended? How is he walking if there are people actually swimming underneath him? And turns out, of course, that it was one of those videos that actually tell you how he did what he did. So that was kind of fun. Turns out that he was walking on a plexiglass bridge. And as long as the camera was angled the right way, you couldn't tell that he was walking on a plexiglass bridge. It looked like he was walking on the water. So the way that they did it was simple enough 
But the illusion was pretty convincing because of the camera angle. And just like we look at magicians and think there is absolutely no way that he actually did what it looks like he just did, skeptics of the Bible and of God will look at an account like this of Jesus walking across the water and they'll say, there is no way that he actually did this. They'll say something like, well, the disciples were off in a boat and Jesus was walking on the shore and because it was stormy and the waves were bouncing around, it just looked like he was walking on the water. Or maybe Jesus was, was wading through the water and it just kind of looked like he was walking on it and so that's what they wrote down. Or maybe there was some sort of sandbar, low tide or something. It was a, a sandbar and he's walking on the sandbar and splashing through the water but he wasn't actually walking through the water. Or maybe most likely the disciples simply fabricated this story about Jesus. Most people who do not believe in Christ, they'll look at a passage like this and they'll be immediately skeptical because that's the natural default of people, just like when we're watching an illusionist. Our natural default is naturalism, right? That the laws of the universe rule what happens in the universe and that nothing else can rule over those laws of the universe. Yet as Christians... We read a story like this where it says Jesus walked on the water and we see that he is clearly ruling over the laws of science here and actually walking on it. So Matthew chapter 14, and let's begin reading in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, they were made well. So remember last week, we looked at the incredible account where Jesus fed the 5,000, much more likely the ten or 15,000 on that day. He spent the whole day healing the crowds. He spent the day feeding the crowds, those who had pursued him into the wilderness. And so here he is finishing that day. And when the day is through, he does three things. He sends his disciples to the other side of the sea. So he tells them to get into a boat. He sends them into the sea. The second thing he does is he begins to dismiss the crowds. Obviously, thousands of people apparently healed all or at least the most of the people who had been there. And then the third thing he does on this night is he goes and he finds a secluded place on the mountain to pray and hours go by. 
So Jesus goes up onto this mountain, and we know that hours go by because it mentions the fourth watch. And so the fourth watch would have been between 3 and 6 p.m. when the disciples were off on the sea struggling. So Jesus, by this time, after dismissing the crowds that night, has been praying for hours. And Jesus, although certainly exhausted from feeding and healing the people all day long, and even wanting to get away from the crowds in the first place, he has certainly, by this time, after praying for all of these hours, he is exhausted. But look at the example of Christ here. That it didn't matter if he was tired. It didn't matter if he had a full day of ministry the day before. Jesus was going to pray. His prayer life is unmatched. Indicated within this passage again, the boat is a long way off. The crowd has been dismissed for some time. And Jesus is alone taking the time to pray. One theologian said this, If Jesus, who always does his Father's will needed to pray for such a lengthy period of time, how much more should extended communion with our Creator be a part of our lives? If Jesus Himself needed this kind of prayer, if He Himself needed these hours and one night to pray, how much more do we need to pray? Somebody else said this, Martin Luther, in fact, said this, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. And what is our excuse for not praying? Man, I don't have the time. But here Martin Luther, the great reformer, is saying, I have so much to do that if I don't pray for three hours, it's not going to happen. Do you purpose to pray? Do you follow the example of Christ here? Do you find a closet? Do you find a place of seclusion and pour yourself out to the Lord in prayer? I Honestly, I don't think I've ever met a Christian who hasn't said their biggest struggle is prayer. That the hardest discipline, the hardest thing to do is to have that kind of communion with God where we are secluding ourselves. Not, not just, Lord, please bless my food. Lord, please bless the day. But getting hours away and praying to the Lord. But look at Jesus here, taking hours deep into the night to pray. I think so many of us, we get so caught up in our own strength. We rely on ourselves. We want to do everything on our own. We're just going to make it happen. But we need to pray. We need the strength of God. Yet in our text this morning, while Jesus is praying on the mountain, the disciples are struggling on the sea. The Sea of Galilee was not very large. In fact, we call it a sea, but it's actually a lake. But a storm, as it does even now, back then, and back then, but what happens is the winds blow through the surrounding mountains, and almost instantaneous storms arise on this lake. And that's what happened with the disciples on this night. The disciples are in this fishing boat, and they're struggling against the sea and the storm. And again, the text says that it's the fourth watch. So they've been struggling for hours upon the sea. While Jesus is off praying, they have been struggling on the sea for hours, exhausted, no doubt, from a full day the day before. And now here on the sea, they were utterly exhausted. Yet the important thing to note is that they were obeying the command of the Lord. 
Jesus told them, in fact, the, word, the verb that's used is made or compelled or essentially forced. Jesus forced the disciples to get into the boat on this night and he, moved, and he wanted them to go to the other side. So this is a really strong verb here. And so they were obeying what Christ had told them to do. Yet here they are in their obedience, struggling against the wind and the waves. It's the, the struggle of obedience. And I have to ask you, have you ever ever felt this way? God, you you read in His Word, and God tells you to do something, and you actively seek to obey the command of the Lord, yet it is nothing but a constant struggle. The situation and life and family or whatever are against you, yet here you are struggling against the storms and currents of life in order to obey the Word of the Lord. How many of us have been there? But the Lord has told us, do this. And we go out and we want to do it. And we want to obey the Lord. But it is a constant struggle. Let me encourage you to keep on. Keep obeying the word of the Lord. Follow through with obedience, regardless of the difficulty. Jesus, he, he finally comes to these disciples in the fourth watch of the night, which certainly wouldn't have been as soon as they would have liked, right? I mean, if I'm a disciple, I'm thinking, man, Jesus, couldn't you have come in the first watch of the night? The the second watch even? Why did you make a struggle for hours until the fourth watch? Yet he came to them nonetheless. And the result of it would be a strengthened faith. As a result of going through this trying experience of battling against the waves, their faith would have been strengthened in the Lord when they see it all after it's all said and done. And the Christian journey is one of obedience and you will experience struggle. Yet walking through those struggles, that is going to bring endurance to your faith. You talk to anybody who runs, you talk to anybody who exercises, how how are you going to get stronger? How are you going to build up that endurance? You do it and you go and you go and you go and your endurance will grow. And it is the same here. When we experience struggle, it will bring conflict to our lives, yet it will bring endurance to our faith. And although the disciples were struggling on the sea, we need to be clear that Jesus saw them in their struggle. Matthew doesn't say it here in this passage, but the the Mark account of this passage says that Jesus could see them. So there he is, he's off on that mountainside and he's praying and he can see out onto the Sea of Galilee and he can see that the, the disciples are out there struggling in that little skiff trying to obey his command. And my friend, Jesus sees you in your struggle. Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus is pleading on the shore though we are struggling on the sea. Jesus sees you in your struggle to obey. He sees you being battered by the waves. His eye is never away from those whom he loves. And knowing that his eyes are always upon us helps us to do what he has told us to do in the first place. Knowing that Christ is is watching us. And as our high priest, he is interceding for us in heaven. Does Does that not give you the strength and the motivation to continue in your obedience? Knowing that his eyes are on you. And like he goes to his disciples on this night, he loves to come to his children. Look in verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. So just because you've heard this story a bunch of times in Sunday school or 
preaching or whatever. Don't let that phrase lose its punch. Jesus is actually walking on the sea. And like we saw with last week, with his dispensing of the loaves and the fish to all of those people, what does this show us about Jesus? What does the fact that Jesus can walk on water, what does this show us about him? It is showing us that he is God. In fact, the Bible mentions in a couple places throughout the Old Testament, in the book of Job, it says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Psalm 79, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. If creating more and more out of a couple fish and a few loaves of bread, if that proves his divinity, walking on the sea proves the same exact thing. Jesus is the one who treads upon the waters. Jesus is the one whose path is the sea. This is incredible truth there. This is the divinity of Christ on display. But can you imagine, again, being a disciple? Well, you're exhausted. You've been rowing for hours. All you want to do is sleep. And all of a sudden, you think that you see a ghost. Jesus is walking on the sea. He's walking toward the boat. And you think that you see a ghost. Look at verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out with fear. The first thing that they think is ghost. And this wouldn't have been a a weird thought. Maybe it is for now. I mean, I, I think more and more people are now starting to think that there's ghosts. There's ghost hunters on TV. Or whatever. I think they're rebooting Ghostbusters. So the the whole ghost thing is kind of popping up again. But here they are a couple thousand years ago. And the thought of a ghost really wouldn't have been that far out. But why would they think that it was a ghost? Why would they automatically assume that somebody walking on the sea is a ghost? Because like we talked about with the magician thing. it, It doesn't happen. Right? People do not walk on the water. Therefore, it had to be a ghost. There had to be some other explanation. And despite this terrifying storm and the possibility of a ghost, Jesus sees his disciples struggling in this boat and he says, take heart. It is I. Jesus didn't leave them in fear. They see him. They think he's a ghost and says, no, take heart. It is I. Older translations say, be of good cheer. Why in the world in this moment When you're rocking around on that boat thinking you're going to tip out and then you see a ghost. Why in the world? How could you possibly be of good cheer? How could you take heart? Because Jesus was there. Sometimes as a parent, there are those times when the children are scared, right? And we run to them as fast as we can and we grab them and we say, Mommy has you. Daddy has you. And although in that moment the child is petrified, the presence of the parent somehow makes it so much better. And here Jesus is, he sees his disciples on this sea struggling, they're petrified, and he says, take heart, why? It is I, I am here. And so Jesus is comforting his disciples, battling the storm through his sheer presence. He comes to them and he speaks comforting words to them, despite this dreadful situation around them. But I want you to notice that nothing in this scenario has changed when Christ walks to them. 
The disciples are still battling the sea. The storm is still raging. And Jesus charges his disciples to take heart because he was with them. Although in that moment he didn't calm anything. It was still raging. They were still to take heart because Jesus was with them. And for so many of you battling through the storms of this life, the presence of Christ is the only thing that can and will calm you. It is the only thing that is going to bring you any kind of peace. It is the only thing, His presence, that is going to give you the hope that you need in the midst of a storm that seems too much to handle. And the world says, ah, you need a crutch. And I say, no, He's so much more than that. Without His presence, Without him being with me every moment of the day, without him carrying me, I would not make it through. Back in Matthew chapter 8, we saw that Jesus calmed the storm. So on another night on the same sea, Jesus calmed the storm. He said, peace be still. And if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking to myself when I see him, hey, Jesus, can you do that thing? Can you do that thing that you did a, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, where you, where you calmed the sea? Can you make this all die down? But that is not the first thing that happens. Look how Peter reacts in verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now this is incredible. So Jesus is God in the flesh. And Peter was not God in the flesh. Peter is simply human. And he gets out of the boat and he begins to actually walk on the water. And so at this moment in time, right, all the disciples are in that skiff. Then you have Peter standing on the water, walking toward Jesus as a toward Jesus who is God in the flesh and you have Peter who is man in the flesh what an amazing scene this would have been for them to behold Spurgeon said again on this passage we can do anything if we have divine authorization and courage enough to take the Lord at his word Peter had the divine authorization and he had the courage to trust in the word of Christ to come but what we cannot miss is that Peter was not doing this in his own strength. He was not doing this in his own power. You notice that G- Peter essentially asks for permission from Christ in order to do this. So this is not some sort of great self-empowerment on Peter's, uh, Peter doing this for himself. What he does know though, is that if Jesus is walking on the water, and Jesus bids him to come on to the water, then and only then can he also walk on the water. But never simply because he can just empower himself to do it. This is all representative of the power of Christ. Jesus said one word, come. And Peter obeyed and was empowered by Christ to walk on the water on this night. Very simply, Peter had faith in the word of Christ on that night. I think we talk a lot about faith. Christians talk a lot about faith. But what is faith? Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, or the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So a lot of times when people who don't really understand faith start talking about faith, it's almost this 
ethereal, mystical kind of a thing. But Hebrews says that faith is substance. It, it, is, it is bedrock. There is something to it because of what it rests on in Christ. And so faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. So if that is what faith is, what kind of people have faith? Or what kind of people live by this? Well, the Bible also says that the righteous live by faith. It says that several places throughout the Bible that the righteous live by faith. So namely, the people of God live by faith. And we have to live by faith because the Bible also says that without faith, it is impossible to do what? It is impossible to please God. And so if you want to please God, then you must be living a life of faith. And if we do, then according to Peter's epistle, who has some experience with faith, we will receive the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. And what a picture this is of our own spiritual journey. To quote Paul, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith in the Son of God. And just like Peter, he was not walking on the water by his own power. He was walking on the sea in the power of Christ. Yet his sinful doubt is what causes him to sink. And it is the same with us. We walk by faith in Christ through the power of Christ. And when we doubt him and when we sin and when we choose our own way, like Peter, we begin to sink. So why did Peter begin to sink? Because he stopped walking by faith and he began to walk by sight. As soon as he started walking by sight, looking around him at the storm that was swirling all around him as he was walking on the water, he began to sink. As soon as you start walking by faith and not by or by sight and not by faith, your perceptions and your understandings and your wisdom become your priority instead of prioritizing and having faith in the word of Christ and you will begin to sink as a result of that. Yet when we are sinking and we take our eyes off of him, he reaches out, a divine lifeguard, and he saves us. None of us are going to be perfect here. There are doubtless those here who like Peter, we, we doubt. My friend, if you belong to Christ, his strong arm will not let you sink, just like his strong arm did not let Peter sink on this night. I don't think living a life of faith has to be exotic. I'm not talking about living a life of faith and everybody needs to go and be a missionary to the jungles of Africa. That's, that's not it at all. Instead, we're talking about basic steps of faith. Obeying the word of the Lord and walking by faith in his word and not by sight of what we see. So simple steps of faith like being the right kind of dad, being the right kind of mom, being the right kind of child, being the right kind of church member. Living and functioning by faith in what the word of God has to say instead of other things that we see swirling around us. So the simple question is this, does the life that you live right now, does it require any faith at all? Does your life require any faith? Or do you make calculated decisions simply based only on what you can see surrounding you? Peter's walk became about what he could see. He begins making his walk toward 
Christ. And the text tells us in verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. He sees the storm strength and he gets scared and starts to sink. And as he sinks, Lord, save me. Peter stepped out in faith. In those few steps, he was empowered by Christ to walk on the water. Yet his fear of the storm overcame his faith in Christ. Have you been there? You know you're following after Christ, but your fear over the situation causes you to doubt him. So often we we step out in faith and, and we feel as though we're expressing that in our steps that we're making. We desire to do great things for Christ. We desire to honor Him with our lives and do great things on behalf of the kingdom of God. But the littlest thing comes and and just throws us completely off course. Yet true faith is not simply about stepping out of the boat and beginning to what true faith is remaining in the faith, remaining persistent in your faith. Imagine if Peter trusted the Lord, trusted that simple word to come, and he began his walk, and he made it to Christ. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Peter here, he is pursuing Christ. He makes those first few steps, yet it's thrown off course because he begins to walk by sight. But I love that Peter doesn't say, hey, Judas, hey, Matthew, Roll the boat over to me. Come, get me. Who does he cry out to? He cries out to the Lord. And for us as well, who do you cry out to? What do you lean toward when these situations come? What do you immediately look to to save you from the difficult struggle that you're in? Do you call out to something else or do you immediately say, Lord, like Peter, Lord, save me? Look at verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus reaches out and he saves Peter, and as soon as he brings him into the boat, it all stops. How would you have reacted if you were here? If you're Peter and all of this happens to you, how do you react? If you're the disciples and you've been watching all of them, you've got a front row seat to this whole situation. How are you going to react after it's all said and done? The text says that they worshipped, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And our reaction has to be the same. The righteous live by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And as we live these lives of faith, and we stumble and fall and doubt, and have all of those moments where by His strength we walk through these difficulties, our response always has to be the same. Our response should be to fall down and to worship at the feet of Jesus for carrying us through. I can't tell you how many times that I have failed within my own life, and my immediate response is, I need some distance. I screwed up again. I did it again. I said that again. I hurt that person again. And I feel like I need to pull myself away and have distance from God because surely He is not going to take me back in that moment. But one person said this, isn't it wonderful that Christ accepts the worship of those of little faith? 
man, that's me. Or I come to him after struggling. I come to him like Peter here and the other disciples with little faith, not trusting and coming and worshiping at his feet. And he accepts the worship from those of little faith. I doubt any here this morning would boast of their great faith. Most all of us here would readily admit how weak we are. Is that not why we come to worship again week after week? Is that not why we come to this place to worship the Lord? Where the world has us totally backwards. They think that we come here on Sunday morning because we have it all together. And we're just these prime examples of people of faith. Oh, look how good, a bunch of goody two-shoes walking together into the church building to worship God. Because they're just so, they have it so backwards. My friends, we come here week after week to remember how broken we are. And to see again how badly we need Jesus to rescue us from our sin and ourselves. Man, we need Him to calm us. We need Him to hear Him say, It is I, fear not. We need to be reminded that His word alone is what we follow. We need to be reminded that it is His strong arm that saves us because we are total wretches. You know, maybe we're here, you're here. You don't really profess Christ. And you don't know Him. You're not a Christian. Maybe you can draw some things out of this, this story, this account here, and learn a few things. But ultimately, the problem is that you don't have faith. But friend, the only way to be counted righteous in God's eyes is to have faith. The only way to please God is to have faith. So if you do not have faith, you are not pleasing God. So how do you receive faith? The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In other words, when you hear the gospel message, that Jesus Christ came into the world, And he lived a perfect life on behalf of those who couldn't live a perfect life. And he died the death that all of us deserve to die. And he rose out of the grave on behalf of those who could not raise themselves. Believing in this message of Christ and him doing all of this thing on our behalf. Not just believing it historically, like we're going to... Remember in a couple of weeks from now that, yes, Jesus died on the cross. Believe it. Jesus rose out of the grave. Yeah, I can even pull that off. I can even believe that. No, but believing that he died and he rose for you. That is where faith comes from. But regardless of where we are in the spectrum this morning, whether you are somebody of faith, struggling with doubt, but you have faith. You're pursuing after Christ. You're walking Toward him, falling, and he saves you and picks you back up. And you walk, and he saves you and picks you back up and empowers you to keep on going. Or maybe on the other side, where you don't have any faith to believe this stuff at all. My prayer is that those who don't know him will trust him, and that those of you who do know him will continue to trust in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, your word. We thank you that you bid us to come and not on our own power and our own strength, but that you bid us to come and that you empower us for the journey. It is by your strength alone that we walk, not in and of ourselves. We recognize this, that your word is so clear that we do not save ourselves and we do not walk this Christian journey by ourselves, but that you have saved us and that you empower us. 
Oh God, give us eyes of faith to see these truths. Pray, Lord, that if there are those who do not know you in this place and do not have a relationship with you, that they will trust you on this day. Pray this in your son's name. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242 242- 0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine 04363 Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.